is the New South Wales Country Hour with Michael Condon on ABC Radio New South Wales. Hello again and welcome to the show. Coming up, a community meeting looking at the issue of fire and and the control measures there. We'll hear more on that shortly. Also, rain during the peak harvest time for uh, southern New South Wales growers. It's put the brakes on what was shaping up to be a bumper period for the region's growers in excess of 100 millimetres. Fell in a short period around Deniloquin, turning the large grain handler uh, grain corpse receival site into a bit of an inland sea. But uh, this weather event, um, we're in the same boat as all the growers. Uh, a huge amount of water in a quick period of time, so it causes a lot of challenges. And yeah, for those pictures of Denny, it, it's just—it's a tricky area there. We do have good drainage and good culverts, but it's—it's it's just you know, amassed onto the site, and uh, yeah, it, it causes a, a few challenges, obviously. We'll hear more on the rain and also hear from some growers uh, in regards to the rain as well elsewhere around the state. That's all coming up shortly on the program. But first up to Fire Ant and leaders from New South Wales Department of Primary Industry and the National Fire Ant Eradication Program. They were on hand this morning to provide a bit of an update and a bit of advice to members of the business and farming communities as well as local residents on the fire ant response to date in New South Wales. Some of the topics covered included the progress on following that detection, that recent detection at South Mwoolambar and the actions being taken since detection, the next steps and what all the locals can do to prevent the further spread of fire ants and also its implications for agriculture as well. Mark Curtis manages a number of farm properties uh, all over the Tweed and he says confusion reigned for him on a number of issues and he still has a lot of unanswered questions. Oh, it's frustrating because you can't move anything around to feed stock or anything like that and, you know, we're, we're just hamstrung no matter which way you turn. You know, moving machinery and that, you know, if you've got to wash everything down and, and that... Yeah, when you're moving from one place to the next, that all takes time, and we're all running short of time as it is. Yeah. Now you're trying to, you know, you're looking after multiple properties and farms where you're talking about feed moving hay and feed. What are the issues that you're coming up against? Well, just just the threat of the fines and and all that sort of stuff. You know, like you know, it's it's tight as it is. So you know, you get get the threats of fines and you know, you you're hamstrung and. And your livestock is your main concern because that's how you make your money is out of your livestock. Yeah, I'm probably um, a little bit too more too passionate to um, to be commenting a lot, but um, in that sense, because yeah, that's that's what I do for a living, and and that yeah, when I, I look after cattle and that for other people, and if if I don't do the job, then it doesn't get done properly, and and that's that's how I get paid. You know, so I've got to do it right. What's the situation with? feed and hay and horses in this region and where you know we have a lot of horses in this region where is that feed coming from and what kind of problems are you now coming up against the feed all our feed comes from outside you know your grain is growing in your in your grain growing areas your hay is normally comes out of say majority of it comes out of southeast queensland at present you know we can't get it out of there you've got to try and source it outside the fire around area which does get pretty hard where yeah, you know, I got I got a, a mate up at um, Yangan, and he, where we could get a truckload of hay before, you ring him up to get get hay. You're struggling to get 30 bales, you know, because he's he's getting that much demand on it. Um, and then you've got to come back through Woodenbong and all that sort of stuff, you know, round through the out of the area. And then from there, you can, 
I've tried buying hay out of Tamworth. They'll only sell to local suppliers down there, you know, to local people, and therefore you've got to get it out of Victoria or South Australia, and your freight costs are phenomenal. It sounds like it's not sustainable to run businesses in this under these conditions. How is this going to affect the long-term future of a lot of people around here? If this goes on for too much longer, you know, for a, for a period, put it that way, um, I think there's a lot of people who will go belly up because they they just can't afford to do it. And the cost of, you know, like what they're getting returns on cattle at the moment, yes, they've increased in the last couple of weeks, but they're still a long way behind where they should be. Do you have many questions around it and how well do you feel that your questions and concerns have been dealt with? Well, it's frustrating because they, you know, we're going around in circles with their, with their answers and that, and then these poor buggers are, the, are in the position where they're meeting the sandwich and that, but um, you know, where you've got the producer on one side and you've got the government on the other, they can only do what they can do, but we're not getting the answers so that we can do our job either. And I've got more questions than they, they've got answers, and yeah, it's frustrating. That was Mark Curtis, who manages a number of farm properties around the Tweed. He was talking there to Emma Hannigan at the community meeting there. Now, Tammy Ayres is the J.H. Williams Town and Country Branch Manager at Mawillam Bar. She says that the business has been at a standstill with all the restrictions, and she's worried about trading into the short and medium term. Uh, For us, it's pretty well ground us to a halt as far as being able to sell to any of our um, farmers for their livestock, um, as far as being able to sell any soil, uh, mulch. It's really affected us. We're having to turn business away at the moment. I've got staff that are nervous coming into Christmas that I'm going to have to put them off. So um, we're hoping for a solution really quickly with this. Could you put a dollar figure on what you've lost so far? Um, I'd say this week we've probably, in the last few days, we would have lost close to 30 grand. How does that feel coming up to Christmas with staff to look after? Um, It's nerve-wracking. You know, nobody wants to have to tell their staff at, at this time of year, look... We're a bit quiet, we, you know, and at the moment we, we are absorbing that. We haven't had to do that, but it is nerve-wracking. How well do you feel like you've been informed about what you need to do, what you can do, what you can't do, who you can't sell to? Do you feel like you know enough? Um, at this point in the week, um, I feel a little bit more confident, but beginning of the week I had no information. Nobody could give me direct orders of what should be doing what I was legally legally obliged to do so it it was very confusing leading into this and for the past uh, say three four months while the act has been there it was very hard to get information. Do you feel that we've been underprepared for this given that we've known that these ants were in southeast Queensland? I think that this has been um, not dealt with correctly when you've got the checkpoints outside of the valley further down we've had entrance into the valley for months now so it should have been closed off at the border with checks happening from then i think they missed the miss the boat with this what about the future of the businesses in this region how long can people continue well we're already coming off covid and floods and we're very resilient here but it's getting to a point how much more can we take this is really affecting us here 
Tammy Ayres there. Now, Claire Strodder is the market manager of the Moorlambar Farmers Market, and she told Emma Hannigan that she wanted to know how and what needed to be done to keep the farmers market open. To be honest, at this stage, I'm not 100% sure. Um, I don't feel, I do feel a little bit informed, but I think there's a little bit more information I could have, so I'm more informed on that. I think we just need to take steps to, for our farmers, um, need to take steps to make sure that they're not bringing the fire ants in or not having the soil, um, anything on any of the product. Um, so it's really difficult because we've not, had this before and to know how it's going to affect it but we just need to work I suppose with the DPI and get guidance which I've done this morning and to see what we should be doing what we shouldn't be doing and try and work through that with them and our farmers so and have you had much feedback from the people who work who are involved with the market I mean how are the producers and the farmers feeling I don't think really they're aware. Um, I think I find the main the main um, farmers that were aware were the potted plants, um, and some weren't even aware that there was even an issue. So I'll have to do a bit of work communicating. Um, so it would really help, um, I suppose, for the um, council and the papers to to communicate really well as well to make sure that there is that awareness because I think people think going overboard if you know what I mean so um, that would really help me to be able to make sure our market can continue. So we're now it's now today is a week since the fire ants were discovered do you feel like you've had enough information in the last week? Personally for myself no um, I, I actually found out um, about the restrictions through the showground um, no one has actually come to contact me, I've come this morning to speak personally to the DPI because I don't want the market or our farmers to get in trouble um, I want our market to continue so that our community can keep enjoying their fresh local produce um, and it's such a brilliant community space as well, we don't want that to be shut down so um, so that's why I'm here this morning so we can try and iron those things out Now Craig Huff is with uh, local New South Wales Farmers Association he was pretty pleased with the information transfer that was provided by the community meeting yeah, I think uh, it was a good session. The more information that gets out and the more uh, word gets out about the, um, the way the fire ants work and how they spread um, is really beneficial for everybody in the region. Just from an outsider's perspective, it seemed to me that there was an awful lot of questions and confusion that people felt. You know, one of, one of the farm managers said that he had a full scab page full of questions. How, how well are we working through these questions for people? Um, Look, I think the DPI, with the resources that they've currently been given, are doing a great job. Uh, the, the, there, are, there will always be a lot of questions because it's, uh, it's a moving target. There's changes need to be implemented on a daily basis depending on what they find. And we've seen a few of those changes, but it's settling down to be a bit of a status quo at the moment, which is reassuring because we haven't found any new ants away, away from the initial nests. So it's, it's good that that's settling down and businesses and farmers are knowing what they need to do now to manage this. So from the primary industries that you've spoken to, how are people feeling? I mean, one person here said to me it was like a tsunami of disasters, one thing after another, and think we're resilient, but it's getting to the point where we're just sick of it. Look, there's no doubt this is probably the last thing we needed. 
and um, you know while the DPI are doing a fantastic job helping us with compliance and, and they've uh, listened to what we've asked for as New South Wales farmers and they're issuing these compliance certificates or, or permits for no charge unlike in Queensland um, that's a great step forward but um, obviously prevention would have been better than cure. That's Craig Huff from New South Wales Farmers. Now, Ian Turnbull is the Invasive Invertebrates Program Lead with DPI. He says, thankfully, no further fire ants have been detected outside of the council development site where they were originally found. But he says it will probably take five years before the region can be declared free of red fire ants. I think um, we had a really, really positive response. I think uh, everyone is keen to to see fire ants eradicated from this location. Um, Some of the concerns are around the movement of hay, especially uh, into and out of the zone. Uh, But it appears that the majority of that that hay is being kept in preventative conditions, which is where it prevents ants actually landing on and establishing them. So I think we'll be able to move forward reasonably quickly uh, in enabling those those operators to get hay through the zone and out, out, out of the door. How confident are you that we haven't found any more nests so that we may not find any more nests? Oh, look, I think it's still early days. We're doing um, full surveillance over the 500 metre radius and we, we've done a reasonable amount of that, but we've still got some to go. We haven't found any yet, but... Um, there's still still plenty of work to be done in terms of getting that increased confidence. Now there was quite a bit of concern and consternation today about the, the, the figure of that it could take five years to fully eradicate or to be on top of the situation. Is that a sort of a realistic timeline for people? It's definitely a realistic timeline, but in terms of the, the impact um, of the eradication program over that five years it will be significantly declined after the two years worth of treatment so after that two years of treatment it'll be um, it'll mainly just be surveillance and and that's where we we go out and look continually and the more times we look and the more thorough they're looking the increased confidence we have that we have eradicated them so so the five years um, while it does sound like a long time I think will be not as will not have a significant impact on the majority of people in the in the area. How quickly are you managing to move through the permits to get people back to business? Um, reasonably quickly. It's 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 very difficult to to estimate. Every business we go to is different. So we've got you know very small nurseries, which are you know, and to larger sites, which take quite some time so we are getting through them as quickly as possible um, and and we hope to have that completed very soon. It did certainly seem uh, from the the conversations today that individual tailored plans for every business is the way forward. Is that complicating matters? Uh, Not necessarily there are you know there's only so many carrier materials uh, commodity types so if we can nail down the mitigation measures for each of those commodity types we should be able to blanket cover a a range of businesses so for example you know potted potting uh, bagged potting mix you know there's a number of businesses that that carry that and other bagged products Um, if we can write a, a permit that covers all of those um, well, covers that product, it will cover all of those businesses. And so I think there might be a few niche ones that we need to, to get to and, and we're probably not across exactly what those are yet. But I think we, 
using the preventative conditions and the treatment regimes, I think we can probably do it reasonably quickly. And Scott Charlton is the New South Wales Chief Invasive Species Officer and he told Emma Hannigan that uh, he thinks the community consultation meetings went pretty well. I was really happy with the reaction and the amount of questions from the public and I understand there's a lot of concerns and anxiety about the order but we're doing our best to um, answer those questions and I hope we did a good job of um, getting to people's concerns and no doubt we'll be in touch with people and, and drill down to some of those details at a later date. There was, it actually did seem to feel like a lot of it was, okay we'll come to us and we'll sort out a plan for you. Is this really more of an exercise of, of getting people together and creating those individual plans for producers as opposed to being blanket advice? Yeah, that's right. So it's really uh, the the requirements are actually you know quite tailored. Um, we have you know people with different machinery, different processes, different levels of risk. So we really want to see what the threat level is, get on board with them, and make something that's workable for everyone. Because we're here for a, for a long term. We just don't want it to be an impact on people. So yeah, we're about dealing with the risk, but also dealing with people's livelihoods being um, you know not impacted. And we did hear from producers today, there's a lot of questions around things like moving feed through the zone that isn't actually stopping in the zone and, and lots of questions and lots of confusion. How well are, are you guys tackling with that and dealing with it and what advice do you have for people? One man said he had a full scap page of questions. What are you telling people to do if they have all of these questions? Well, we've got some sessions that we've already done a couple of sessions specifically for different commodity groups. So we've dealt with the landscaping industry. We had some really good productive sessions, talked to a lot of the nurseries. They're the really high level um, impacts there. Um, So, you know, each of these businesses can get together with us. Scott Charlton, who's uh, New South Wales Chief Invasive Species Officer with DPI, and uh, and many thanks to Emma Hannigan there for providing that uh, extensive reportage on that fire and community meeting that was held this morning in Mwilumbar, and lots of questions there. It's uh, 23 minutes past 12. ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. You're listening to The Country Hour on ABC Radio New South Wales. Well, rain, rain during the peak harvest time for uh, southern New South Wales growers has uh, put the brakes on what was shaping up to be a bit of a bumper period for the region's growers. In excess of 100 millimetres fell in the short period of time around Deniliquin, turning large grain handler Grain Corp's receival site into a bit of an inland sea. Nigel Lotz is General Manager of Operations at Grain Corp. He says a lot of grain was passing through the site and it will take days to clean up. Victoria's pushing through 1.7 million, southern New South Wales pushing through two. I was seriously hoping that we'd get this done and all have an early mark for Christmas, but uh, this weather event, um, we're in the same boat as all the growers. Uh, a huge amount of water in a quick period of time, so it causes a lot of challenges. And yeah, for those pictures of Jenny, it, it's just it's a tricky area there. We do have good drainage and good culverts, but it's, it's just you know, amassed onto the site. And uh, yeah, it, it causes a, a few challenges, obviously. Um, the team are out there today, checking it out, um, seeing what the, the, the damage could be and the effect of it. Um, certainly from our point of view, it's going to be a little while till we open up. Uh, but yeah, we're just going through the process now, Warren. Can you take me through the process an organisation goes through when you have an event like that? The, the pictures look like it's almost an inland sea around the grain bunkers as well. Some of the bunkers look like they're sitting out of the, the water, but there is just so much water everywhere. What happens at a grain silo or receival site when something like a massive flood or a rain event occurs? 
look, depending where it is, and this is not new to us, uh, last year we had big weather events during harvest as well on a site like Mary Winebone. We actually had a, a whole uh, levee built around the whole site. For Denny, what we'll do, the, the water subsiding. The key for us, though, and we've, we've invested heavily in our network, and particularly Denny, over the last couple of years in our additional storage programs, we just don't want anyone to be driving in there with heavy vehicles. No different to farmers on their paddocks and the councils, their roads will be not will be in the same situation because the, the damage to the pavement, albeit we build to a high standard, it's just a huge cost and then the whole place just ends up a mess and then you're tracking mud and et cetera. So that's a real challenge. Surprisingly, though, some of the story is where, um, as everyone may or may not know, we, we fumigate grain. So to, to fumigate grain, it's got to be 100% sealed uh, in the bunkers and... So we have bottom tarps and top tarps, and for the ones that are sealed up, the, the seal means that it is actually airtight. So that protects us somewhat uh, from, from this as well. Notwithstanding, there's a lot of water there. Um, the drainage, I, I haven't been down there today. Obviously, uh, I'm up in Wagga, but uh, it, it will be subsiding. The key is the team then, uh, when it's suitable, will unroll back the tarps and just start assessing to see whether there's been water uh, inundation into the, into the stacks. Nigel Lotz is General Manager of Operations at Grain Corp, talking there to Warwick Long. Well, the grain, the rain is uh, great news for dairy farmers in the Beaker Valley with falls of over 300 millimetres in some properties filling up the dams. Candelo dairy farmer Toad Heffernan told uh, Josh Becker that it's completely changed his mood. We've had 301 mils up until this morning. Uh, I think it's going to come back in again, but definitely a nice drop yeah it's a big turnaround from just how dry it was can you paint a picture of how things were before this rain yeah well i think the last lot of rain we had was march and i don't think that was very substantial i think we've we've had more rain in the last 24 hours than we've had all year um but i mean our our farm we're pretty much a dry land farm um like a few other dairy farms in the bigger valley but um unfortunately our irrigation pump did play up a bit and so we haven't had much irrigation and and the farm's been pretty much black just back to dirt we've been sacrifice feeding and we locked in a lot of hay and then we've been feeding a lot of hay and all of our silage out and um you know it's just to go from feeding thousands and thousands of dollars worth of feed a, a week to hopefully in the next couple of weeks we'll be feeding you know just the essential bale or two of hay you know I mean, for us now, we're going to re- be relying on the um, Kikuya. Um, it's already starting to power away now. The farm's changed pictures dynamically already, which is great. Um, but, yeah, we'll be relying on the Kikuya growth. Uh, I think all the ryegrass and the leftover oats are all bolt pretty quick to seed. Um, and then we'll start managing our weeds and hopefully get a bit of summer crop in and hopefully we can get that follow-up rain and... Get, the, get all that seed germinate and get a good good, good summer crop and then hopefully be able to jam some away into the holes or silage and, and um, go from there. Toad Heavenen is a dairy farmer from Candler. He was speaking to Josh Becker. Well, in the Upper Hunter, most of 2023, as we know, has been spent feeding livestock due to the dry conditions. But things have improved a lot there too. Selena Crow and her family run an Angus stud at Tymore and she told Amelia Bernasconi it's been nice to not have to cart drinking water to the house for a few days well in the last sort of 10 days um we've seen a difference because we've had 76 mils of rain which is fantastic so everything's slowly starting to green up a little bit so it's um a bit of relief but we desperately still need the follow-up rain that's what's really going to 
keep keep us going in that. Mm-hmm. So yeah, but no, it's good. I mean, the, like, for the last ten months, we've been feeding our cattle like probably nearly everyone else mm-hmm. in the Upper Hunter and broader area. So yeah. How much pressure does it take off? Will you still need to feed or do you think there's enough coming through that you might be able to ease back a fair bit or? Uh, yeah, Millie, we'll be able to come back a little bit. Like we still, we've got to still need the warm weather to make it grow and that. So we'll still continue feeding for a little while just until it gets up and, and going and stuff. We've got um, stud bulls and that sort of ready to get ready for sale and stuff like that. So we want to keep them in their top condition. So, Yeah. You popped a few, was it oat crops you put in and they sort of had a rough start, didn't quite get out of the ground? Yeah, so we have put two different, like a winter crop and a summer crop in over the last 12 months and unfortunately both of those crops have failed just due to not getting the follow-up rain and that they'd come out and, yeah, we wouldn't get the follow-up rain. So, yeah, that was a that was pretty hard for us and that and, the you know, the money and the time that we've put in into it and that. But, you know, we're not the only ones in, in that boat. So, yeah. yes. You were telling me about the water as well, um, that you've had to bring in water, but after the rain, um, you know, you, you got to turn the tap on. What was, yeah, tell me that story. Oh, yeah, everyone, my mother's probably, my mum and dad are probably thinking, thank goodness now. So, yeah, we ran out of soft water, so drinking water, probably six or seven months ago, and we were lucky our river that goes through our place was still flowing, so we were able to fill the house tanks to use that for showers and so forth. But we were actually having to cart water in little 20-litre carry drums from my parents place so lucky we're in you know I work in town so it was every sort of two or three days that we'd um go there fill up take it home but you know and probably sport we're so used to drinking rainwater we don't drink town water so (laughs) it's you know it tastes a bit different so it was great I think on you know Tuesday I was at home and I was able to go to the sink and get a drink of water and it was it was fantastic to have the taste of rainwater again oh, so. it really is the little things and it does so much for your head even you know they said you said you've got a good good total for the the month but or even the last 10 days but even just a little bit of rain on the tin roof oh god it does wonders for your head i know it was lovely i think one one night when we did have a downpour it woke us up it was like one o'clock in the morning and yeah it was sort of we woke up with a start really because we were like oh my god what is, what is that we sort of laid there and we were like it's raining like <laughs> I just hope that everyone is still going to get that follow-up rain. I hope this is actually a turning point for us. That's cattle farmer Selena Crow from Timor in the Upper Hunter down at uh, Broadboy near Scone. Steve Wick says November saw the best fall since October last year and it will take huge feeding pressure off heading into Christmas. We hadn't even had um, 300 mil of rain up to the weekend. And, um, yeah... Thanks to the um, Aussie hay runners that bought our Christmas present real early, um, we received a nice um, load of hay and plus 55 mil of rain Gosh. for the weekend. And then we finished up with 100 and 103 mil for the month. Wow. And that's the best fall of rain we've had since October last year when we had 164 mil in October 2022. A lot of other people around the districts had more rain than me, like three k's down the road at the Kewan Station had 210 mil for the month. Wow. And then over the hill and them on the Dart Brook, they've had 160 mil. It's been yeah. that patchy, hasn't it? Um, yeah. I imagine you've seen some of the storms that you missed. You probably could have seen them moving around that valley, though. 
Oh, yeah, yeah. No, you see him come and go. Even yesterday when I was shearing down at Wybong, um, it all went down towards Denman and Sydney Way, like Newcastle and that, and they copped it down there. And then Wybong there, they had nothing. Mm. Yeah, and they've been missing out on the rain. Have you started to see, you know, a green pick come through or a few changes uh, this month? Yeah, no, the feet's jumping jumping out of the ground. It'll only be a matter of a week or fortnight and um, we'll have feed and we'll be easing off feed and stock. Mm, that's you know, so nice. Some, like, some places that's um, got the big rain, they've stopped feeding stock because the cattle's just leaving the hay, hay behind and, and chasing the green tucker. Um, in this black soil up in Broadway area, um, it takes, you know, two or three weeks for the for it to come through. Looks like the cattle jobs improved um, quite a lot in the last couple, or in, in this week, it looks like the cattle jobs improved. Yeah, no, the cattle, the markets, no, a lot of the markets improved, like the cattle markets improved at nearly a dollar a kilo, like sheep markets improved 30 to $40, and even the wool prices are going up nearly 50 cents in the last week or fortnight, it's going to be a big help. Like, you know, we were, were giving them away, but now um, they're worth feed, you know, feeding and, uh, and um, keeping for a bit longer. Yeah, isn't that a nice Christmas present, seeing everything go up and, and the rain? Yep, and the rain and the hay runners bringing that Christmas present and the rain with them. That's a real big help. Yeah, and it's going to save the problem of feeding Christmas Day. Yeah, we can we can have a rest on Christmas Day now. That's mixed farmer Steve Wicks near, from near Scone, and he's speaking there to Amelia Bernasconi. It's twenty five minutes to one. Shortly, we'll have the details on the weather. Most of that rain has moved away. We'll have the latest uh, on the forecast from the bureau shortly. But before we do that, Adam Story is here to tell us what's happening in the news. And I promise I won't swear. <laughs> Lucky like where the mics are off. Oh, <laughs> like you were when the, the mics were went on. Yes, no, yes. they were about to be. Yes, naughty, naughty. Yeah. <laughs> uh, paramedics in New South Wales are demanding to meet the Premier uh, as the pay negotiations continue. There was an emergency meeting yesterday and it continued uh, again today with the Health Minister and the Industrial Relations Minister. Uh, the paramedics are seeking a pay rise of at least 20%, which they say will bring them into line with other states and uh, states and territories. Now, this has all come at a time when they need to re- uh, the paramedics need to renew their registration uh, within the next month, uh, otherwise it will lapse, and 2,000 of them have threatened not to renew their registration as a result. The uh, pause in fighting between Israel and Hamas uh, is set to end within hours after the ceasefire was extended for another day. Uh, that will also see the last uh, hostage exchanges take place. However, talks are continuing to see if they can get a, keep it going for another 24 hours. And this could be a day-by-day thing where they do extend it, um, hopefully day-by-day. Uh, back home, the latest monthly figures from CoreLogic show the property market appears to be stabilising, although it's still red hot. Uh, the uh, um, $730,000 is the medium price, however, you can pr- pretty much triple that in um, <laughs> Sydney and Melbourne. Yeah. Uh, I don't know what $700,000 would get you in those capitals at the moment. Mm. Uh, so, uh, the, however, despite those record uh, highs, the, the numbers were flat in Sydney, Melbourne and Canberra and down in Hobart and Darwin, but they're still strong in Brisbane and Adelaide. And Perth, and the suggestion is the prices won't rise as quickly as they did uh, this year. Uh, and um, 
Uh, no bit today. Shane McGowan from the Pogues yeah, has uh, passed that. away at yeah. the age of 65. Um, oh, He'd been in hospital with yeah, encephalitis. Yeah, he, he hadn't been well hadn't for been a, well, a very yeah. long time. I know. Um, he'd been confined to a wheelchair yeah. uh, for quite a while. Uh, but he did, uh, he'd been Christmas, I think, Fairy Tale of New York. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Would yeah. be in was, a lot of people's was, minds. That's right, absolutely. Some great, uh, more of a poet than... I think uh, that's right. Uh, a, a renowned singer. Yeah. But, well, that's right. Yeah, yes. When you hear very him sing, unique, when you hear him a very sing. unique singer. That, right? <laughs> that's exactly but right. But he got across. What <laughs> that's was right. Oh, they were a, a very, a very love, accomplished band. Oh, the band incredible of musicians. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I Amazing. absolutely love the Pogues. Yeah. 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 They're, they're, but they swear. So there you go. You're in good that's company. That's where I got it from. So <laughs> I was very young when I started, first heard the Pogues. <laughs> that's right. yeah. There you go. But as as someone said, we'll be hearing Fairy Tale of New York. So where's Adam getting on the radio? Listens to the Pogues. It's because he gets it from the Pogues. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and that down that dirty old town. That dirty old town. Yeah, <laughs> where I met my love. Yeah. <laughs> that's right. Oh, beautiful, Be- beautiful sentiment there <laughs> in that, that song. song. Yeah, there you go. That's <laughs> Adam's theme song. You're listening to the Country Hour. It's uh, 23 minutes to one. Let's find out what's happening with the uh, weather details now. And Stephen Stefanak at the Bureau. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Michael. Now, so the rain has all moved through now, has it? Yeah, much of the worst of the rain, uh, which gave that, gave that flooding, or flooding in the southeast corner of the state, has moved away. However, there is still some rain lingering about. In that southeast, that flood affected area, it's still got some showers and thunderstorms expected. And, uh, but also got some showers and a little bit of rain in the north, not too heavy in the northern parts of the state. And a chance of thunderstorm in the far north today as well. Right, thunderstorms in the north. So, substantial rain there? Uh, not hit in and the miss, north. I suppose. Looks, looks pretty, yeah, with, the, with showers and thunderstorms, it's going to be pretty hit and miss. Looking at the southeast, though, over the next couple of days, particularly over the weekend, not completely out of woods there, so we're not expecting a widespread heavy rain, but localised heavy falls over the weekend, particularly tomorrow afternoon in that southeast corner of the state, is still possible. This may lead to the risk of localised flash flooding. It's not expected to have much impact on, on the riverine flooding, but uh, it's still uh, there's still some moisture around in that southeast corner. Again, on Sunday, maybe the risk a little bit lower, but not completely out of the question that thunderstorm activity, activity lingering in the southeast there. Mm. And looking further ahead, uh, warming up and drying out a bit? Yes, that's right. So this last bit of moisture hangs around on the weekend, particularly in that southeast corner. But then we get a high-pressure ridge uh, replacing this low-pressure trough through next week. It's going to mean a warming trend into next week. Uh, a drying and warming trend, I should say. So most of the state by Tuesday and Wednesday is looking like mostly dry conditions right through the state. And those temperatures will be climbing too. So by um, by Wednesday and Thursday or Friday next week, you're looking at maximum temperatures in the northwest corner of the state where it will be the hottest, reaching those low to mid-20s um, in, in the northwest by mid, mid to late next week. Right, okay, and not likely to heat up more than that, sort of head into the 30s and 40s in the next week or so? Yes, that's right. So I mentioned the far northwest reaching the low to mid-40s, but even elsewhere around the state, if you're not in the northwest, uh, it's still going to be pretty hot, at least in the 30s for most places and the low 40s for many other places which don't reach the mid-40s. Okay, so pretty quick turnaround by the sound of things. Yep, by mid to late next week. Yeah, okay, Stephen, thanks for that. You're welcome, thanks, It's uh, 20 minutes to one. ABC Listen. 
podcasts, radio, news, music and more. You're listening to The Country Hour on ABC Radio New South Wales. Well, carbon and nature markets are expanding across the world and credit schemes are being floated as a way for agriculture to help tackle climate change. Food systems are going to be high on the agenda at this year's Global Climate Conference COP28, which uh, has already begun uh, this week in Dubai. All this week on ABC Rural, we've been looking at how agriculture is affected by and contributes to climate change, and uh, it's likely to be on that agenda at COP28 quite significantly. But farmers could also hold some of the solutions to the climate crisis, as Fiona Broom reports. Trees, soil and nature are recognised as some of the best tools for bringing down global carbon levels. Carbon and nature markets have sprung up in recent years as ways of managing emissions and rewarding conservation. They're broadly known as nature-based solutions. Carbon markets are the most well-established. They offer companies ways to compensate for emissions by reducing or storing carbon elsewhere. Farmers manage half of all the land in Australia, so carbon markets are seen as a potential new revenue stream for agricultural businesses. But are they the best tool for cutting carbon? We've got to be very careful when you put value on something like carbon that you don't just end up moving carbon around the landscape and the net result is the atmosphere doesn't benefit. And I think we're seeing too much of that happening already at the moment. Richard Eckard is a professor of sustainable agriculture. We've got to be careful about carbon markets because I think what's happened is the people that are meant to actually get the money are not getting the money as much as they should. You know, the the brokers are actually achieving most of the gains out of the carbon markets. And in some cases, we're actually shifting deck chairs on the Titanic and not being serious. Farmers want to help mitigate emissions, according to Farmers for Climate Action CEO Natalie Collard. She says producers are receptive to carbon schemes so long as they don't operate in opposition to efforts to tackle climate change. I think like anything new, there's a lot of information that's required. Anything that's developed in terms of new markets, time plays a part in understanding whether they achieve the outcomes that they're um, setting out to do. What we hear from our 8,000 plus farmer members consistently is that they're really first and foremost focused on deep emissions reductions. First and foremost, they want a stable climate so that they can produce a stable food supply and do it profitably and productively. Second to that is that any offset markets are genuinely also supporting that objective and not a perverse outcome. National Farmers Federation President David Johinke says schemes need proper oversight to deliver benefits. What we've seen in some circumstances is blocks of land being purchased for offsetting of carbon being locked up and not being managed at all. We have weeds, we have pests that now live in those landscapes and actually putting pressure on food production outside of their system, let alone not maximising that natural environment that they're claiming as credits. Australian Food Sovereignty Alliance President Tammy Jonas says using agricultural lands to store carbon won't stop emissions from other industries. In the case of carbon markets in particular, you can't have it both ways where um, you pay farmers to sequester carbon, which is a worthy undertaking, and then let them sell those credits to the others who continue emitting at the same levels. It's giving the miners, uh, the extractive industries, a a get-out-of-jail-free card 
while the planet burns and they don't reduce emissions. So the food sovereignty movement and indigenous movements the world over are strongly opposed to nature markets or any market-based solution for sequestering carbon. We could do like Europe does and subsidise farmers rather than fossil fuel companies. There's a novel idea. Professor Richard Eckhardt says systems that reward land stewards who are already storing carbon and boosting biodiversity could deliver real benefits. Nature repair markets, I think, are more optimistic for the long-term future. Currently, if you've got low soil carbon, we pay you to become high soil carbon. The, the people that have high soil carbon, we don't reward. Whereas in biodiversity markets, we'd be actually saying, if you've already got high biodiversity, we will recognize and reward that. So I, I think there's a difference between rewarding poor performers to become better, which we shouldn't be paying for, as opposed to rewarding farmers that have already done the right thing. The extreme example of that is if you've got high soil carbon, like most good, well-managed grazing systems would have maxed out on soil carbon already. The incentive is to put in a rotary hoe, plough it up, burn off all the carbon you've got so that you've got low carbon and then engage in a carbon scheme to rebuild it. Um, instead of saying, well, if you've got 5% soil carbon, let's celebrate that and say you've got a wonderful outcome. We, we don't do that. And that's where nature repair markets might be better. University of Melbourne Professor of Sustainable Agriculture Richard Eckhart ending that report from Fiona Broom. 14 to 1. ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Well, the medicinal cannabis industry is booming, but did you know that less than 20% of what's consumed in Australia is grown here? That's prompted the formation of the Australian Medicinal Cannabis Association to support the cultivation of domestic crops and improve quality for consumers. The chair of that organisation is Emily Rigby. Look, I, I think it's really important that the Australian cultivators do have a group where they can talk about any issues, help each other to improve cultivation practices, whether that's production efficiencies or how to deal with a new pest or disease, any issues that really come up that relate specifically to cannabis growers. But also the Australian market is dominated by imported medicines. Now, we needed to import medicines to fill the demand, but it's really now time that we get behind how Aussie growers and support Australian growing like we do for so many other industries here in Australia. Are there many cannabis growers in Australia at the moment? Yeah, look, there'd be about a dozen cannabis growers with a lot coming, you know, working their way through the Office of Drug Control application process. So we will, we do continue to see more and more growers coming on board. But as I'm sure you could imagine, being a Schedule 8 medicine, um, there's a lot of regulatory hoops to jump through to get that licence and then get permitted to start growing. And do you know how much of the medicinal cannabis sold in Australia at the moment is uh, produced in Australia? Not as much as I would like. I believe perhaps it's only about 10 or 20% at the moment that's Australian grown. We are exporting some, but we are definitely heavily reliant on imported medicines. Emily Rigby is with the Australian Medicinal Cannabis Association. She was speaking there with Eliza Berlage. It's 12 minutes to one on the country hour. Well, let's look at livestock markets now. Rain over the last three weeks has certainly seen the cattle markets lift right across New South Wales. This week, the Gunnedah market saw almost 3,000 head yarded with restockers much more active than they've been in months. Tamworth Stock and Station agent Chris Patterson told Lara Webster there have been more smiles as, at the rails as the price has doubled for some lines. Especially young cattle, the restocker cattle, jumped up a heap. They've probably nearly doubled, uh, the young cattle. 
So, yeah, you see a lot of young steers making $3.50 a kilo now, where they're only making that $1.75 there a month ago. Uh, heifers making up towards $3, and, yeah, they're only making you know, $1.10 or 20 So rain over most areas, everyone seems to have got rain over the last few weeks and um, improved the market big time. So when you look at the, the restocker market, how is that playing into things? Is there a, a lot more confidence now off the back of this change? Are you starting to see more restockers come into the game? Yeah, very much so. Like Everyone did get very negative. Um, yeah, it was all the, the talk of El Nino and that sort of stuff, and people were, wor- they were worried. They were thought we were going to, you know, it's only been three years since they're one of the biggest droughts we've seen, so um, they were worried about that. So now it's good feed coming, and everyone was down on numbers. Yeah, the restockers are back in the market, and when they've got green grass and things growing, um, they'll have a crack. I mean, you mentioned there the the coverage of El Nino, and we certainly saw a lot of it. Uh, and I'd certainly heard of of some people. I think they were they were selling stock off quite early in the piece. And in your your opinion, Chris Patterson. Were there some knee-jerk reactions off sort of all of the coverage that we have seen over the El Nino? Definitely, yeah, it, it definitely changed. There was a lot, lot of media talk, and uh, it, it did, it did um, change people's opinions that they sold early because they didn't want to feed. They didn't want to have to go into that feeding pattern again. Uh, feed prices were going up, and they didn't know how long they're going to feed them for. So, a lot of people did sell early, so and that made it hard. On the sheep side of things, how have things been tracking there? Better, uh, not the increases the cattle have had. Some, well, there's some big heavy lambs here on Monday, maybe uh, 170. It's improved, but it's only twenty dollars better. It's, it's not, um, it's not, not a, a big percentage better at this stage of the game. But hopefully, after Christmas, when a few more get it, clean up all those old, old lambs out of the road, the young lambs hopefully will make, make a bit more money in the new year. How long do you think this latest rain will sustain livestock? Yeah. <laughs> Summer's usually pretty good, so we, you know, now we've got got a good profile. If we do have a, you know, need a crack of storm here and there and keep us going, but oh, don't worry, coming to our Australian summers, if we get a two weeks of 35 degrees, we'll, we'll be calling out for rain again. But the main thing is for most of it now is, yeah, we'll get through December, January pretty good. If we can get good rain end of January, February, then we can start sowing the winter crops. So that, that's the time we need it now. You certainly do spend plenty of your time talking to different clients, different people. What are the other sentiments as we head into the end of the year? We've seen this rain. Christmas is close. How are people feeling? Oh, a lot better. I think it's going to be a lot more smiles and faces for Christmas with the, with the green about. Tamworth Stocking Station agent Chris Patterson talking there to Lara Webster. Now, Matt Dalgleish is with episode3.net. He says the livestock market fall. He agrees it was overdone in the light of the overall farm conditions and international livestock pricing as uh, farmers here got spooked by the forecast of an impending dry. Yeah, that's right. I think there was a a bit of a realisation and the rain probably helped that kick along a bit um, that we're maybe not as dry as what people were thinking or or the prospect of going into a really dry season is maybe not exactly what we're facing just yet. So people got a bit too pessimistic? Yeah, I think so. I think there was a bit of fear there. Um, You know, certainly some of the the outlooks uh, were pretty, pretty dry and that was what got the ball rolling with this kind of added supply that came on the market. And then once the price started to come off, I think that kind of added to the panic a little bit. And people, some people have blamed, like I know some commenters have sort of blamed the Bureau for being too too pessimistic about the, the outlook too. 
Yeah, look, I don't think it's necessarily all the Bureau's fault. I mean, if you think back and anyone that's been involved in, in livestock markets for a number of seasons, having those three years that we had in Australia of fairly wet weather and really good seasons to grow your herd or to grow your flock, um, that's pretty un- uncommon to have three seasons in a row, you know, historically. And, and so to have a fourth season of really good rainfall, I think most people, even without the Bureau's um, forecast, I think most people that have been around for a while were probably thinking, look, this can't last another another year, surely. So it was probably the Bureau's forecast that just added to that gut feeling they may have had that, you know, we can't have four years of really good rainfall. And then the confirmation of El Nino. But we still, El Nino doesn't mean it's going to be strongly hot and dry. That's right, yeah. No, if, I mean, El Nino cannot sometimes lead to a significant drought, but not always. Uh, and now also we've seen that you know, through summer the El Nino pattern often does break down, which is what we're seeing at the moment. And so the, the big question now, I guess, Michael, is what happens as we head into 2024 and towards the autumn break? Because um, that El Nino may reform uh, and, and we could go back to a drier patch, but it could also go back to a more neutral if the, if the El Nino doesn't reform. So I think that the eyes are on that now. But it, you know, it's a good thing now to see that producers are focusing more on what's in front of them in the paddock and, 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 and feed available and the rainfall that's actually there rather than um, worrying about what may happen into the future. And when people have had two or 300 millimetres or 100 millimetres, I mean, that'll, st- that'll hold them in good stead for a while, at least a few weeks, maybe a couple of months. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And, and now those prices, I mean, they're not quite yet back to what I'd call uh, normal levels when you compare, say, cattle price discounts to where overseas benchmarks are like the US. But we're certainly heading towards there. You know, we're probably only, in terms of the heavy steer, we're probably only another 50 cents or so away from levels that I would think would be a bit, bit more fair value. Yeah, that's that's the point, isn't it? I mean, we, you know, competitive overseas, <clears throat> yeah, our price is uh, quite low still. It is, it is, and it got really low. At one stage there, if you're looking at the heavy steer, um, at one stage it got to pretty much a 60% discount to the US equivalent, um, heavy steer, and that was a record discount we've seen. You know, that was even wider than the discount we saw through the 14, 15 um, extended drought period when, when we got heavily discounted as well. Um, but, but yeah, the, the most recent one was the, the widest that discount had been, so it was very much overextended um, to the downside. Yeah, that didn't make sense economically. No, it didn't. No, no. And, and it didn't make sense in terms of, you know, a spread of that nature would be consistent with us turning off more than 9 million head of cattle each year to slaughter. Um, we're only doing about 7 million head according to MLA estimates. So, you know, we're not even slaughtering above average levels annually yet. Um, you know, so, we, we, you know, we weren't at that kind of extreme drought turn off liquidation phase that's usually consistent with discounts of that level. And why aren't we exporting at record levels now? Then, if the price, if our price is so competitive, uh, look, the exports have certainly increased, uh, and so compared to last year, we're, we're very much above average. And particularly in the last probably four to five months, we've really kind of picked up in terms of volumes uh, for beef exports specifically. Um, the, if you look at the top destinations, uh, the US is very strong. Um, China's you know reasonably strong, above average. And then you've got South Korea also doing well, but Japan is the you know usually a key market for Australian beef, and the Japanese demand is still under under the average, under the seasonal levels. And and in Japan, I think they're still working through a bit of their own internal cold store of beef stock, so that demand's quite subdued. We probably need to see demand demand in Japan firing as well to really start to get some record volumes going through. And when are we going to see the uh, you know the Eki get up to those you know stratospheric heights again? It'll be a while. 
Oh, yeah, look, I think even even with this recovery and, and the prospect for maybe a bit more price increasing, I think um, when you look back historically at how high that ECI uh, was in, in inflation-adjusted terms, that was the highest we've seen young cattle on record. So, you know, they were pretty stratospheric levels. Um, I don't know we're going to get back to that in a hurry. Um, you know, we need to... Um, I think, you know, we've, we've obviously started to see the herd rebuild. There's a bit more turn-off um, coming along... Um, MLA slaughter figures as the years progress are increasing in line with that higher herd. So production's up, um, you know, herd numbers are up. Uh, so that's going to kind of weigh a little bit and, and stop the ecchi from racing away. Um, and I, th- I think we're going to have to wait until we see the next cycle when supply is very tight and we get, you know, a number of good seasons in a row before we see those kind of prices again. Matt Dalgleish is with episode 3.net. It's uh, coming up to three minutes to one. Hello, Samantha Donovan here. I hope you'll join me for the world today. We'll head to the Middle East. Top American diplomat Antony Blinken is back there ahead of the next ceasefire deadline and urging Israel to do more to protect the lives of civilians. Also, statistics show a disturbing number of women experience financial and economic abuse after relationship breakdowns. Those stories and more coming up on The World Today. And on the country out, it's time to go to markets. And it's time to go to Griffith Sheep and Lambs. Good afternoon. Small yard in of just 3,250 lambs and 4,500 sheep. All the rain has put a bit of go into the lamb run, with some buyers pushing for numbers even though there wasn't a lot of quality. Any lambs showing a bit of weight were keenly supported, despite some pens not handling very well in regards to consistent fat cover. Crossbred lambs over 22 kilos carcass weight were 10 to $30 dearer. No big export lambs here. The 26 to 30 kilo crossbreds, 139 to a top of $178 at a ballpark cost of 580 cents. Not many neat trade lambs either, and a few woolly suckers in the 24 to 26 kilo range were considerably dearer at up to $149. General run of mixed domestic lambs, 90 to 125, with any of the better types above 500 cents. Light lambs also dearer at 48 to $85 to processors. The sheep yarding didn't have the weight or quality to rival last week and prices did come back to the field, noting Griffith had some of the dearest mutton in the state last week. Merino weathers to 105, extra heavy dorper used to 90, crossbred used to 88, lot of sheep and hoggets 35 to $70, good heavy mutton 230 to 280 cents. Jenny Kelly for MLA. You've been listening to the New South Wales Country Hour and um, I'm off for a couple of weeks. Amelia Bernasconi will be uh, keeping the chair warm, so uh, make her welcome. And as I said, I'll be back in a couple of weeks, just before Christmas. It's coming up to one o'clock.